Okay, we attend, direct our attention now to the Word of God. It was during the Reformation that the Scripture finally uh, found its place where it should have belonged all along, and that uh, one of the hallmarks of the Reformation was sola scriptura. Only through Scripture do we find the truth, not through the rites and not through the rituals, but through the Word of God. And as a result of that, it was uh, through the reformers that preaching came back to where it belonged, and that is the real high point of the service is always, always when you open the Word of God. So let's do that now, and I direct your attention to Nehemiah chapter 2. We've been working our way through this book. It's been a delight to be able to teach it uh, while uh, Adam has been on uh, his sabbatical. But let's, uh, let's now look at, if you've got a, a copy, then that's great. I always like a hard copy. I like to feel it. Turn the pages. Hear them rustling. But that's just me. Uh, chapter uh, 2, and let me begin with a co- the larger context, reading from verse 4 through verse 20. And you follow along as I read. Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my requests, for the gracious hand of my God was on me. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and the cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. After I arrived in Jerusalem, I had been there three days. I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. I went to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. 
The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. So let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be in a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshub the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building. But you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. I imagine that life had become fairly routine and predictable for those who were living in Jerusalem, and that's the case for most of us. Life is fairly routine, and one day looks pretty much like the day before. And this certainly was the case as shops were opened for the day, and women were at the well filling their jars. Men were meeting in the public square and the farmers were out in their fields attending their livestock. And the children were playing, perhaps in the streets or in the, in the square. But then in the distance came Nehemiah's caravan. And that must have been an impressive sight to see. It may have stretched a mile long beginning with the cavalry that led the way and then followed by the attendants, those who would be serving Nehemiah, along with his luggage, and then cart after cart of lumber that was pulled by great beasts, and then the cavalry that would have been at the end of the line. And and how this began to move up the road toward the capital city, Jerusalem. And whatever routine that the people may have had, the quiet lives that they led, they must have realized that that was going to change. But they didn't realize and didn't understand how it was going to change. They just knew that it was going to change something about this. Now, if Nehemiah traveled the route that normally people took from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, to Jerusalem, he would have headed north along the Euphrates River and stretched all the way up to the northern part where Syria today and the Turkish border meet, would have gone west and then headed south along what is today the Lebanon and the Syrian border, and he would have made his way. And it's 1,400 miles. It would have taken weeks in order to travel that distance. 
and how Jerusalem must have been a welcome sight for this caravan as they finally reached their destination. But it was a mystery on everyone's mind. Who is this man? And why did he bring all of this lumber with him? What are his plans? Why is he here? And not only were the residents of Jerusalem going to see that their lives were going to change, but there were others who saw the same thing. Their names are mentioned in verse 10. Sanballat was one, and Tobiah, and then later Geshem the Arab was mentioned as a trio that led opposition against this enterprise. And it tells us in scripture that they were greatly displeased by what they saw. But everybody wanted to know, why is this man here? It must have been the topic of conversation around the dinner table. Certainly was the conversation at the, at the square and at the city gate. Maybe up at the temple. And everybody was asking, Wanted to know what was the answer to this mystery. Why is this man here? Nehemiah rested for three days. And then the next night, he headed out to inspect the walls. He secretly exited his quarters. He mounted a horse. And he made his way along the labyrinth of the rubble against the moonlight is really his only, his only light. All of the rubble that was strewn about, the jagged remains of the demolished walls and the charred remains of the gates. And against all of this, you could see this dark silhouette of a man that was looking and investigating and inspecting and, and at intervals he would stop. And he would take mental notes of what he was seeing. And we find that this is his journal. We're reading his journal. These are his notes that he himself took. In verses 13 through 15, he tells us the route that he took. Though he inscribed it down for us. And at one point, the path was blocked so much by the debris. It had been sitting there for 140 years. All of these large boulders. And it was so much blocked that he had to dismount his animal and he inspected on foot the remainder of what he was going to look at that night. And then he mounted his, his animal again and he retraced his, his steps back to the entrance at the valley gate. And apart from a few trusted men, nobody knew where he had went or why he was going anywhere. It was all done in secret. Well, the next day, having collected his information, he had done all of his homework, he gathered the people together and he approached the leaders and the citizens and the mystery that was on everybody's mind of why is this man here was finally revealed. In verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. 
Well, Nehemiah had a plan. And he was going to present this plan and he might have only one, really one good chance to present this plan. You know, this is the first time, right? Out of the gate here. And so he had to present his plan to the leaders and to the citizens as to the reason why he had traveled the distance that he had and why he was there. And he must have carefully arranged his thoughts because he knew he had only one chance to get this right and to convince them. And it was important how he would make sure that every word, and he must have thought it through, what are the words I'm going to use to convince them of this work? And so he began to disclose his plan. Today we're going to examine what it is that he told the people and what was their response and what can we learn from what he said. God is going to use this in your life because if you will put yourself among those people who are listening to Nehemiah and if you will bring it today in this 21st century into our own context and to to imagine what it is and where it is that God has placed you, God has something to say to you this morning if you'll listen very carefully. The key verse in his journal and this diary that he kept is verse 18. And it goes like this. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. There is, there is one phrase that I think we need to put in bold letters in that verse because unless their hearts were captured by this one phrase, unless they were thoroughly convinced of that which we see within this verse, they would never even want to start the, the job, nor would they certainly finish it unless they were convinced and unless they believed what was true about this. And, and it's true for you and I. Unless we believe with all of our hearts of this one phrase that we find within this verse, we will, we will fail when times get hard. And it is found in the latter part of that verse is the last three words. It's the words, this good work. He wanted to convince them that what you are about to do is a good work. And it's something that God has placed on all of our plates and in all of our lives. He has an assignment for each of us. And in his estimation, no matter how you feel about it, when it's done for his glory and done for Jesus, it's a good work. It's a good work. And that's the one thing that Nehemiah drives home. He's calling, he's calling all of the people, will you join me in this good work? because you're going to be a part of something that is, is a beautiful work. And really, that's the, 
the nuance of the, of the word, good work. It's a, it's a beautiful work. It's a work that will bring you joy. It's not going to be an easy work, but it's going to be a satisfying work. It's going to be a good work because it's going to meet a great need. And this is a principle that we find even from Genesis 2 all the way through the rest of the scripture. And that is that God gives assignments. He gave an assignment to Adam. He gives assignments all through scripture. And this is the, the principle that we find that God has a unique, unique plan for each of us and we are to give ourselves, give ourselves to the good work that he has. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, pay careful attention how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. It's a good work because it's a lasting work. When it's done for God's glory, it outlives us. Our works follow us all the way to heaven. And it has eternal consequences. It makes a difference even when you don't personally see anything, you say, I don't understand. I can't see that I'm making any difference at all here. God knows, and he's watching. It's a good work because it will increase God's fame. When you honor him, people see that, and his fame increases. It's a good work because it requires us to die to our selfish desires and we are humbled by it and we engage in something that requires us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord that he has given to us and it's a good work because others see the reality of Jesus Christ that he's alive and he lives in us and we are doing this for Jesus' sake. And it provides for us a platform so that we can declare the excellencies and the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, outsiders who were watching the Jews rebuild that wall, to them, this was not a good work. It was labor and toil and sweat, bumps and bruises, and as we're gonna find, great opposition. But God saw what, that they, what they were doing, and they were doing exactly what he had called them to do. This was the will of the Lord for them. And in his estimation, in the value that he put on this, this was something that was right in line with a, a sanctified, a holy work, building a wall. Now you may be thinking, well, I'm not convinced that in my situation that I see that this is a good work. You know, my mind turns to a little book that I've read over the years called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a, a friar, lived in the 17th century in France. He was an uneducated man. He was just an ordinary guy. Worked in the kitchen of the monastery. He's the one who would cut and prepare and chop vegetables. He would sweep the floors. 
He would get the supplies in the wagon. He sometimes repaired the sandals and the shoes for the other friars in the monastery. It was a low position. It was a position that was for the uneducated, but he did everything, and in his letters, he talks about it. I did this for Jesus. And, he, and the reason why this book continues to be read today is because when people are, read it, they realize, wow, this man really loved the Lord. And, and he did everything for the glory of God. He practiced the presence of God. He believed that the Lord was with him every day, no matter if he was sweeping a floor or picking up supplies or chopping vegetables. And this is the question that, it, that, that I'm faced with. What is what is it that you're investing in? What is that work that you're busy about that honors the Lord? And you may ask, well, how can, how can there be anything that is honoring to the Lord washing a mountain of laundry or wiping a, a runny nose? Well, if, what is honoring about doing the same job that I've done since I was a teenager? I don't feel like it's very honoring to the Lord to be doing this term paper for school. Or we wonder what's honoring to the Lord to be setting up chairs for a, a church meeting or praying week after week and we don't really see any results or we're, perhaps somebody watching today is confined to their home and you're thinking, I don't feel like I'm really doing anything significant here. And yet you're watching today. And yet this is what God has called, and it's a holy work, and it's a good work. So let's look today at how Nehemiah presented his vision and how he changed their minds by presenting three convincing arguments, because they did a 180 turn. Up to this point, they looked at all the rubble, and they said, it's impossible. What's the use and they were so discouraged, they, they didn't even want to begin. How did he turn them from that attitude to saying, let's start rebuilding? What did he say to them that changed their minds? And how does this apply to our lives as well? Well, the first of these convincing arguments is that he told them and convinced them that God is personally here with you. He is with you in this good work. You are not alone. He is with you. And every place in scripture where God calls a man or a woman to a good work, their immediate thought is, I don't see how I'm the one that can get this done. And, and their immediate thought is how impossible this is. And you see this time and time and time again. I would imagine that when Joseph showed up in Egypt, having been sold to the Ishmaelite merchants and having been sold by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver, he arrives in Egypt. They speak a language that he doesn't speak. He's in an entirely different environment. He's sold as a slave to Potiphar's house. And I would imagine Joseph was saying, I don't know how I'm gonna do this. But you know what it says in Genesis 39, three times, 
Three times it says the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him and, and brought significance and success to what he did. The moment that David was anointed as the king, the, the king to be by Samuel, it tells us that he was immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. God was with him. Gideon protested to the Lord and said, how can I deliver Israel? I'm the youngest in my family. And God's reply was, I will be with you. Moses, when he confronted Pharaoh, he was not alone. I am was with him. Joshua stepped into the shoes of, of Moses to lead the Israel to conquer the promised land and God assured him of this and he needed to hear it. He said, have I not commanded you, Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The apostle Paul is another one when he was converted on the Damascus Road. And, and, and Jesus revealed to him that he would be his messenger to the Gentiles. And Jesus' words, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And I would imagine that Paul, as much of a genius as he was, and he was in a whole different stratosphere as far as being a, an intelligent person. And yet he, in 2 Corinthians 3, reminds us that his adequacy was from the Lord, that it was God who made him competent to do what he did. And in all of these instances where it seemed like it was an impossible work, they are reminded that the reason why you will be successful is because I am with you. The Lord was with them. When now when Nehemiah set this challenge before the people of rebuilding the walls, I wonder when he mentioned that, that this was his intent to rebuild the wall. Can you imagine the gasp among this whole group of people as they're kind of looking at each other thinking, what? What did he just say? We're gonna do what? We're gonna rebuild the walls. Here's this new guy, rolls into town, doesn't even live there, wants to, to start a, a, constructive, a construction initiative, and, and, and look at the state of the walls. It's a mess out there. And they've been sitting there for 140 years. It's impossible. And yet, verse 18, he shows them why they should give themselves to this work. He said, I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me, that God was with me. And in verse 12, what God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now, maybe you feel today a little intimidated by the work that you have that you're a part of. And we have different circles. We have our own personal life and we are a family and then we have the community around us. So there's different, different ways that we are all working and where God has put us. And maybe you feel a little outnumbered 
You look in your section of perhaps where you work or maybe the campus where you are, the dormitory where you live, and you say, I don't know if anybody else is even a Christian here. I may be the only one. I remember back when I was in college and be walking down through the halls of the State University where I was, I was in the dormitory floor having to find my way through the, the smoke of the marijuana. And somebody saw me on the elevator with my Bible and called me a Jesus freak. And I'm like, I don't even know if there's another Christian on this whole floor. But about the whole dormitory, that was like 20 floors. And, and, uh, and you know, sometimes you feel that way. I mean, am I the only person who's a believer here? And, and this is where God has put me. And here I have a task to do. And it's bigger than us. It's not just a paycheck. It's not just a diploma. It's not just, you know, a something that you're doing in the community. It's something bigger. And, and sometimes we grow tired and we're tempted to make a change and say, I think I'm out of here. I, I think I need, a, I need to leave. I, I can't do this anymore. Maybe you're young or you're inexperienced and you've, thrown, you've been thrown into something as you feel is way out of your depth and and we all need to say what we find in this particular chapter, and that is that God is with me in this good work. I am not by myself. Jeremiah felt that way when God called him. He said, look, I, I don't know how to speak. I am so young. And God's words to Jeremiah, it said, the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for I am with you. Bang. Case closed. It's a good work, and it's often a hard work, but the presence of God is with us. But another convincing argument that Nehemiah used in order to turn them 180 from we don't want to do this to let's start rebuilding is this that the need, the need is great and only a good work can help. And he frames his argument in verse 17 two ways. He said, you see the trouble we are in and we will do this so that we will not be a disgrace. It was a visible, something they could see. It was a problem. They were vulnerable to the danger. Their defenses were down. But secondly, the place was in disrepair and it was dishonoring to the Lord because Jerusalem was the city of God, the city of the great king. And Nehemiah chose his words very carefully to give it the, the biggest punch. And he used the word trouble. Now that may not sound like much in English, but the particular word that he used when he was presenting this was a word that emphasized the danger that they were in. It was a strong word. It, it, it captured the idea of the evil that they were up against, the danger, the bad situation, and it reflected badly upon the honor that should be given to the Lord. Now, Nehemiah didn't take a poll he, he didn't do a survey 
You know, this wasn't a democracy going on in this particular moment. Say, well, let me see a show of hands who's in favor of doing this. No, he said, this, I understand what God's will is here. Let's do this. Let's join together in this good work. You see the state of things, the things are bad. When I look about me today and I see the state of, of say, just the family in our nation, and, and, I, and, you know, and you can look about you and say, there's a great need here. There's a great need for Christian families, Christian parents to raise their children in such a way that they themselves as husband and wife will model what it is to have mutual submission, to model that before the world and to do so without apology and that they will model a home where their, their behavior matches what they proclaim to believe. And that there's something authentic about their faith and about their life, that it's not a hypocritical show. It's not a pretend. We're not acting here. This is the real deal. And where the scriptures are instilled into the minds of the, of the children and the truth of the Bible is something that we live by and, and we delight in the Lord in our conversation and in our music that we listen to and what we view on television and and you know and and we look about us and you and we say well you can see the trouble that we are in and you can see the disgrace about us in the world today let us rebuild let us be different let us stand apart and, and not only does God say, I will be with you in this, but the only way to, to meet this need, this is a great need, is to do a good work. And it starts oftentimes within the family. But a third convincing argument that Nehemiah used was this, that God had been faithful in the past. And when I talk about faithful, it's a word we sing about and we use a lot, but it, it, is, it is attached to something that a person keeps their promise. God keeps his promises. His words are sound. And he's saying God has been, God has a proven track record here, people. He's talking to them. God has shown me his faithfulness his supply and his provision, and he will help us to get this job done. And he, and he gives them the evidence of that. Now, you and I, we also see the promises of God that have given to us. One of the first promises that Jesus told us was that he would give to us the Holy Spirit, who would not be just with us, but Jesus said he will be in you to help you to live the Christian life to help you to be the people that God intends you to be, that you're not on your own. And God keeps his promises. He gives to us the spirit of the living God to help us in this, to overcome sin, to overcome its temptations, to live a holy and godly life in this present age. And so Nehemiah began to recount to the people the evidences. He said, let me tell you 
how my gracious God has been with me and must have gone through the whole story about when he learned of the need from his brother, how he began to fast and pray, and then that crazy day when, when Artaxerxes says, you know, you're not looking too good today. Are you feeling all right? You know how life can change in just a moment? I don't think Nehemiah ever imagined that God was gonna answer the prayers the way that he did. I mean, he must have felt like dirt that day. Like, I wish I would have stayed in bed. He was depressed and discouraged. Now he's confronted by the king about, you know, you're not looking too good. And that was, of course, a big no-no. And it opened the door, and here he is. And he must have recounted this, and the people knew how frightened he must have been in that moment. But he said, but God was faithful. And look how he worked. And he began to show them all of the evidences, the answers to prayer, the fact that the king was so disposed to give him the letters that he requested. And then the, the big bonus was to send along the, the cavalry and then as a military escort, which he did not ask for. But the king did it anyway, all of that. And so we find ourselves with the situation that we're at and we commit our way to the Lord and we ask him, God, would you be faithful to honor my efforts? And sometimes those efforts, you don't see it. You don't see it right away. I think of William Carey, one of the great missionaries who served for years and saw very little. I was just even reading recently and talking to my wife about another missionary. He said, we've been here for over a decade and, and we, can't, we have hardly anybody in this whole time who has become a Christian in this in this." country that we're in but God sees and in, in his economy in his estimation it's a good work he's got a plan stick to the plan verse 18 it closes let us start to rebuild and their hands were strengthened for this good work well let me ask you what is the good work that God has called you to my challenge is that you would not only give yourself to, to serve the Lord where he has put you, but to devote yourself to do it faithfully. First, he urged, you know, he urged them to consider the fact that God was with them. And secondly, he, that, that, uh, that God you know, answers prayer, that he was there with them. And they would not be alone, that he would strengthen them. And, uh, and so we say, you know, let us rebuild. God is present with you. So what is it? You know, for Nehemiah, it was like God laid this on my mind and upon my heart. So what is it for you? What is it for you? At your stage, and I've told you before, I'm at my stage of life. And God has a good work for me to do. I'm not done yet. And will continue to serve until he takes me to, to glory. But God laid it on my heart, Nehemiah said. What about you? And, and the look about you, just as he inspected the walls, maybe you need to, to do your homework. See where the need is. 
and see what it is and what your role is. And then ask God to confirm it along the way. And then, and then you may in, actually present it to others and say, would you join me in this? Maybe all you can do is pray for me, but would you join me in this? I need, I need help. I can't do this by myself. Would you accompany me in this? And then finally, don't be surprised if along the way you have opposition because Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem is going to, they're going to come up later in the chapters ahead in some of the things that we'll be studying. But you'll face opposition. But God is faithful and he will help us to endure and to be able to finish well. Well, let's pray. Let's give the matter to the Lord and maybe what it is that God has called. Maybe you're a student here today. Maybe in the university. Maybe it's a, a secular university. And if you're like me, you looked about you and said, man, I don't even know if there's any other Christians in this classroom. I still remember when I was in philosophy of religion class at the State University, which uh, I don't know what was in my brain to even take the course, but I was there, and I was so ignorant, and I was so naive, and here we are talking about religion, and the professor asks a question, and I give my Sunday school answer, because the Bible says so. That was my answer. Because the Bible says so. I stood up. The answer to your question is because the Bible says so. And he looked at me like I was from another planet. And I thought, wow. I might be the only Christian in this whole room. And laughed me out of the room, you know. But that's life. That's the way it is. We're faithful because it was a good work. And maybe that's interesting enough is that the professor wanted to talk to me later about his own life and that he was what he called a reverent agnostic and was searching. One of his comments to me personally as a student, he says, I, I'll tell you, Sam, that I wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, afraid to die. And here I answered, because the Bible says so. It was good enough for me. Our God, we pray today that whatever it is that you have put our hand to, that we would do it with all of our might, that we would do it for your glory, for your honor. I pray that in all that we do, that you would make it count for eternity whether it be something that is on the home front and something very domestic or whether it be out in the workforce or in the camp, campus or whatever it may be, in the community, down at the gym, where, wherever it may be, that the work that you have set before us and what you've called us to do, that we would be faithful in it. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.